Loading. We are live. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. I'm here today with a very, very, very special guest, Danielle. Let's say your last name. Therio. Therio, or in some circles, The Riot. The Riot. It spells The Riot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you here was plain and simple because you're a fucking legend. Legends never die. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true. so good to have you here today. So, Thank you. So, Danielle, usually the way that we do this is we delve way, 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 way into your past, uh, your upbringing, where you're from, where you were born, all that stuff, get into uh, what happened, and then, you know, other things, like the, reco the recovery portion. So okay. tell me, who's Danielle? Where are you from? I was born and raised in Orange County, Eastside Costa Mesa. You're from Eastside Costa Mesa? Yeah. I never knew this. Yes, 20th and Irvine Avenue. I'm a Costa Mesa kid originally. Yeah. Well, not originally. Utah first, but then later on, Costa Mesa. So tell me, uh, born in... Hogue Hospital. Hogue Hospital, Newport Beach. Yep. Okay. And you went to where? Costa Mesa High? I went to, wow, many high schools uh -huh. due to my addiction. Um, oh, you went to the uh, continuation school? That's where I ended up, yes. <laughs> Was it the Back Bay over in Newport? Back Bay, where the winners go. That's right. That's right. Um, I have three siblings. They're all normies. Mm -hmm. um, we were raised sort of with a plan to be athletes. And that was the only plan. Right. Um, so I ran track. I was really fast. Um, I was at Newport Harbor. And then I switched to Corona Del Mar for their coach. Okay. And I did really well there until, you know. Until you didn't. The pressure of track and field, I I'm a perfectionist. So I got third once and I just thought, all right, I'm done. <laughs> and then... Like because you got third place, you were down on yourself? Yeah, it's really bad. It, track is a lot of pressure. It's a one-man sport. A perfectionist much? Yes. And how, how did that happen? <laughs> My dad put a lot of pressure. Um he, I had a coach and then my dad also played the coach and it was just a lot of pressure. Mm. And then after I quit, I met the, you know, the one, the high school sweetheart. Um, and then very quickly he smoked weed and I was probably 17 and I tried smoking weed. At the age of 17? Yeah. That's the first time you've tried a substance? Yep. Because it was just... We were really sheltered, and my dad was really strict. Okay, but you were influenced by this guy? Yeah, he smoked weed, so then I started to thinking nothing of it, just thinking it'll be a few times. And okay. right, like, in the program, they talk about the disease being progressive over time. Mm -hmm. I was addicted instantly to everything. You loved it? Yeah, so... When it, you say everything, what else was there? Cocaine, ecstasy, oxy, heroin, alcohol. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are some heavy, like, I understand that the cocaine and the ecstasy maybe during that period, but like, just to just bundle up like uh, heroin, <laughs> oxys, like, how did that happen? So I actually got really lucky with heroin and oxy. I, I kind of tried to get addicted just because everyone was doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is so great about this? And so I tried it and I don't know if it just doesn't hit the correct receptors in my brain, but I was not blown away by it. So those being downers mm -hmm. and cocaine and ecstasy kind of being stimulants, like mm -hmm. what, I mean, 
did you like doing the faster stuff? Yeah. So I started at, very shortly after weed, I started drinking and it had to be a long six years for anyone in my life because I was addicted to everything right away. So, so this th- is between 17 and 23. Yes. And if I wasn't doing drugs and drinking, mm-hmm. I was in jail or psych wards or rehab. There was no job. There was no school. Um, I picked up my first drink and was a nightmare right away. Mm-hmm. Um, alcohol and I don't mix well, but I am a major alcoholic. And when you when you say first drink, was it beer? Was it harder harder stuff like hard liquor? Harder stuff. I don't like beer. It's you know it's. A I never slow I never process. liked beer. No, it's a slow process. It fills you up. Right. I, I'm not into it. Right. So it was straight up hard stuff. <laughs> yeah, and then I started cocaine and it was over from there. I just remember right when I did it, asking the people around me, um, what is this? How much does it cost? And how do I get this every day? Was money an object? Did it even matter? Well, in the beginning, your parents aren't, you know, really clued in. Right. And so I was still getting money and Um, after CDM, I went back to Newport Harbor because I wasn't running track anymore and got... So CDM, um, you went to Corona Del Mar High School. Yeah, that was my best year. (laughs) All downhill. Athletically, your best year going downhill? No, I was an athlete. I never drank. And What grade were you in? Junior? Sophomore. sophomore? Okay. Sophomore. Then went back to Harbor for junior year and got suspended in the first two weeks for having marijuana on me and how'd you get caught I lived like a block away my parents divorced and my mom got an apartment near Ensign Junior High and it was very close to Newport Harbor Mm -hmm. and I had took a break to go smoke and then came back and the security lady on her golf cart Mm -hmm. asked to search me (laughs) and so you're talking about the narc the school narc yeah, so rude. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of interactions with the school narc myself. Yes, like, a lot of chasing the go- like being chased by the golf cart. Yeah, she took it very seriously. <laughs> right. I actually like to give them a, a run for their money. Yeah, I don't know what it was like. I was a rebel. I mean, I, yeah, it's like want to mess with me. <laughs> I get scared. I'm like, sure, search me. <laughs> and they searched you and found it. Yeah, and then Harbor decided that I need to go to this. Um, school called Hope Institute in order to return to back to the high school. Yeah, but I never made it back. What Uh, was Hope Institute? It's this school for, you know, like a secondary educational learning facility. People. Yeah. People that are in trouble and they trouble the drug addicts. Yeah. The people that fall behind in school, the ditchers, the cutting class types. Yes. That's where you went. Yes, and you I never made it back to regular high school because over there you were. I got kicked out. But what were you doing at the Hope Institute? Um, well, at that time I was doing cocaine, drinking, and marijuana. No schoolwork. I, you know what? I always did my schoolwork. I think it's because of my anxiety. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I at least need to get this done. Okay. And but I got kicked out because I, you know. I think I got enraged over something and tried to punch the teacher and then got kicked out and then ended up at Back Bay. Have you ever like uh, 
look back and try to see like where your anxiety originated? I had it my whole life. Ever since you were a kid? It was a nightmare, yeah. Did you feel like you wouldn't be an underachiever, so you had to achieve, achieve, achieve? And if you weren't like on your A game, then you would get the anxiety? Yeah, and I have my dad's bipolar one manic all the time. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of success because of it. He ran track for UCLA, went to the prelims for the Olympics. So that's where we got like our, our sports plans mm -hmm. and we really didn't have a choice right. whether we liked it or not, but he was very strict. So I just had it in me. I have to get these things done. Even when I was an addict, I was like, okay, my life is falling apart, but I need to at least do my schoolwork. Okay. So when you said for those next six years, does that mean you had gotten sober at 23? I did get sober at 23. I met you when you were newly sober right like a year sober yeah before yeah okay now you said your dad was diagnosed with bipolar mm -hmm. growing up did did you know that your dad had this diagnosis or is this something that you learned later everybody knew something was off everybody in orange county he was they were scared of my dad why tell explain bipolar one to me that from especially like the description of your dad like was it hot and cold what was it he was he was very abusive toward me, especially when I went into my addiction. So okay. when I quit track, it was devastating for him mm -hmm, because he was already athletic himself. Mm -hmm. And the, the plan was for go to UCLA and run for Danielle to kill it. Yeah, as far as you, uh, being an athlete, like a professional athlete. Yeah, that was his hope. So it pissed him off. Oh yeah, and then I was in my addiction, and he just started. He was he's verbally abusive. And okay. he sometimes verbally abusive is gnarlier than physical. Yeah. I mean, if it can tear you down, if you heard the things he said, mm -hmm. it was insane. Right. And we weren't like allowed to do anything. Right. So when I started acting up, he would like show up to houses I was at where you were partying. Yeah. And like threaten their life. <laughs> threaten the people's lives. What was it like down in Newport beach? Yeah. Like down in the jungle. High school students would throw parties like at their parents. And then when I really got into my addiction, it was, um, you know, the peninsula, of course, yeah. bar hopping. And then eventually motels and it, stuff it, went, like it that. got to that point. Oh, yeah. So did, did the cocaine turn into like meth? Did you ever do meth? I tried meth. And after seven days, I ended up in a psych ward. And I just saw what meth was doing to people, you know, both physically and it just is an insane drug. And I ended up in a psych ward and I just thought cocaine was the better fit for me. Okay, fair. <laughs> you said ecstasy when you said you were doing ecstasy. Was this something that you were doing in school, in high school? Or were you doing it like at um, uh, raves? I, were you going to raves or clubs? Yeah. So when I was at Back Bay High School, it's a continuation school. So you put all the people together that are in trouble it's not a good mix right because everybody's now figuring out who can get what yes people were snorting like xanax off their desk in in class did you, <laughs> did you no but i would did you take xanax back then no those were never really my thing mm -hmm. i would do drugs during school but yes i got into ecstasy and it was the same as coke same as alcohol who sells this how much does it cost and how do I get it every day? And I met the dealer and became his best friend. And did you have to spend less because you became his best friend? 
I, yeah, I spent nothing. He gave me like three ecstasy pills a day and there was this based off of your good looks or were you dating this guy was not dating him it, yeah you're just the homie yeah it we had like this rave crew were you a raver i we would go to the like the small ones every weekend in la like the clubs i i i don't even think i've been to a massive rave. Right? those were good enough those were great they were like the intimate setting where the, there's music there's yeah I party would, drugs yeah, I would dance the whole... It was amazing. Did I you thought. dress like a raver? I don't... No, not like the full-on raver. You didn't have like the little no. Princess Leia buns? And no. Like pass, <laughs> I would wear pacifier like a, a dress or shorts type. and shirt. Yeah, you were just like the little Newport chick up there. Yeah. Like, but know, my like, first rave, I'll never forget. I was like blown away by ecstasy. I was dancing all night. It was the best feeling in the world, but I didn't know anything about ecstasy. So I was like chewing my mouth chewing your mouth yeah and not you, gum no and you don't feel pain like this yeah that's why they have the pacifiers <laughs> that's right that's right so there's like people always thing. wonder like what's the why why do kids that are raving yeah want pacifiers when you're doing ecstasy there's a lot of things that go on like you want to put the the uh the face mask like the surgical mask with the vix on the inside of it yeah because it like intensifies the high and just yeah. the whole like the whole act of it all. were you doing that too no but i i thought people were just wearing the pacifier as like a look <laughs> I, I had a gold one like a gold plated pacifier oh, no. but that was for the look well you're a professional well no i mean i was slinging dope but so like oh okay i mean there was it went it was like a persona yeah you know what i mean like i had to like carry that the, yeah but but i do remember like a lot of people were sucking pacifiers when i first saw that mm -hmm. i was like what the fuck is this all about they're yes. like they're like really tapping into their inner child yeah and i put it in too late i had already chewed my mouth open yeah your lip was sufficed yeah yeah <laughs> yes okay so Ugh. so okay so you had your rave stint and rave stint uh, motel stint motel stint and dad was coming and finding you at motels Actually, yes. And eventually... What a buzzkill. The worst. Oh, my God. To be interrupted in your drug using yeah. by your dad, <laughs> all your friends, I mean, well, so-called friends, yeah, yeah. are just like, what the fuck? Yes. And there was this Coke dealer. So my parents would kick me out a lot. They separated when I was 15. Mm -hmm. And I... I would latch on to dealers. So the Coke dealer, I was homeless and I showed up to his house and I said, can I live here? And at, at what age? Um, 22? Probably 18. Oh, 18. You were homeless? Yeah. My parents said no more. And I'm telling you, my addiction went down quick. Um, and the... Hence the reason you got sober is really young. Yeah. Because I wasn't, I had nothing to distract me. No school, no work, just straight survival off like friends. You know how friends stick together sure. in their addiction? Sure. So motel hopping, living Couch surfing. the dealers. Yeah. The dealer said I could live there. He lived with a few other drug addicts and he said I could live there if I like brought my friends over for parties. Of course. Yeah. Don't bring the dudes, bring the chicks. Yeah. And this guy was so interesting. He gave his coke to everyone, like guys, girls, just as long as you're partying with him. I think he was lonely or something. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that like to do cocaine, especially at well-to-do 
men and maybe some women. Yeah. That they don't, they're not even about the sex or anything like no. that. No. They would just like to have people around to talk with and like do yes. drugs. And I always clothes. found those people. Well, of course you did. I was like, wow, how <laughs> of generous. You did. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was going to ask you, um, your dad was bipolar one. You were diagnosed bipolar two. When did that happen? When did you know? Before my addiction. So at what age? Probably 15. That young? Yeah, because I had um, an eating disorder. Okay. Um, I didn't know how to deal with my dad and like what was going on in my house, all the chaos. So, Do you think your dis- eating disorder originated from the chaos within the house? I think so. And I mean, you said it was right around that time that the divorce happened. Yeah. Did the divorce fuck with you? Well, I told my mom to divorce him. Okay, so you didn't care. No, she said she wanted to wait till we were 18, but I told her, what's the point? Just do know? it now. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Okay. So eating disorder, did you know you had an eating disorder? Or did you have body dysmorphia? No, it kind of just started as restricting. Like, I, don't, I don't know why. Explain Maybe. restricting for those that don't know. It started with not eating and then counting calories. And then I had this thing where I could only have like 800 calories a day. Okay. So you were kind of obsessed with calorie counting. And now were you, did you become anorexic? Ambulimic. Ambulimic. So you were purging? Yeah. Anything I ate. Anything you ate. So the the psychology behind it was I can eat, but I also can't, I don't want to hold it down because I don't want the calories to go within my system. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go make myself throw up. Would you stick your finger down your throat? Yeah. And then... And then quickly I got to 85 pounds. Because now you're not holding down any food and you're not, Mm -hmm. you're not gaining weight. Okay. So did your teeth get fucked up as a result of this? No, I think it's because I dropped the weight so fast and so many people got concerned. And my dad was like, this is not happening. But did they know? Oh yeah. Cause the weight just, it was concerning and he was so worried about my track career mm-hmm. that he was like, we have to fix this immediately. Okay. I went to a nutritionist and a doctor. The doctor said, if I don't follow the nutritionist plan, mm-hmm. then I'm she's going to send me to treatment. Were you truthful with the doctor about what you were doing? Well, yeah. It's Restricting, hard. bulimia, uh, you know, purging. Yeah. My, my dad walked in on me a couple times, but... Walked in on you throwing up? Mm-hmm. Like you were over by the toilet purposely just... Uh, yeah, like, and he would lose it. He caught you doing that. Yeah, and lose it. And what would you... How would you react? Um, I was just scared of him because he didn't react like a normal parent, like with concern. It was more oh. anger and... Like, what are you doing? Yeah, and like mean remarks. Sure. Like, like locking me in my room and yeah. Do you have a relationship with your dad today? I do. We can get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. In a yeah. Just curious. Cause yeah. I, I very much relate. I mean, I wasn't bulimic or anything like that, but um, there was a lot of turmoil within the house verbally, sometimes physically from my pops, which I really love him to death. I, I know it's all he knew how to be. That's what I've come to. Yeah. He was doing the best he could at the time. Yeah. Plus you sprinkle some bipolar in there. And of course, like, yeah, they sometimes can't help themselves. Well, Annie's a drink to die alcoholic. Okay. Is he in recovery? No. I mean, he's not drinking right now. To die. Yeah. But when he does, it's like my drinking. Hard drinking. Okay. Yeah. So now at 15, you had the eating disorder. You then 
how did bipolar come into the mix? Like, how did you find out? Um, I think because I had similar, you know, characteristics that my dad had, like rage, mm -hmm. fits of rage. Um, Were you violent? I have been. Right. Within relationships and things like that? I have been. Right. But it wasn't like every, I, it would happen like one time and it would be like a shock to me. Sure. And it was mortifying. And like efficient. afterwards you thought, what the hell, who is that? Yeah. Right. Like right afterward. Oh, right. Immediately. I'd be like, you see red and all of a sudden you're like, whoa. Yeah. Who and is who's that? Right. Yeah. It was, it's just a nightmare. So they medicated me and all this stuff. Well, when they medicated, did, did someone say, this is a problem. We need to take you to a doctor, like a psychiatrist to see like what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. Who was it? Dad that took you? And my mom. And mom. Um, I, the depression wasn't normal. I was. Even you were depressed at 15. Yeah, and at CDM, when I had never done drugs or alcohol, mm -hmm. I would go into these depressions, and they were deep. It wasn't just regular sadness. My friends were concerned. Sure. They were like, this isn't normal. Do you think that eating disorder is an addiction or like more of an obsession? For me, it was an obsession, but I am aware that eating disorders are usually like a long-term struggle. Mm -hmm. Like... It's always going to be there. Right. It wasn't like that for me. Once I recovered from that and found drugs and alcohol, it never happened again. So I think it was an escape. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes that's what happens is a lot of people that will have an eating disorder at a very early age mm -hmm. and later it'll transfer into other things like drugs, alcohol. Were you ever a cutter? No, I, I tried it once mm -hmm. to see if there was relief. I heard people were doing that. And you had no relief. I didn't like it. So, so when the doctor then said, well, I mean, they, obviously they assessed you mm -hmm. and you told them things and they're like, they just determined, okay, you're bipolar too. Yeah. And bipolar is really genetic and my dad's bipolar mm -hmm. and one in four kids get it. I have three siblings. I think I got it. <laughs> the other three normie kids didn't. Yeah. They're normal. They drink normal. They're successful. <laughs> so the, you said medication. They started to give you medication at the age of 15? Yeah, I was taking medication, going to therapy. And then when I started doing drugs and alcohol, I had this psychiatrist who said he knew I was using. And he said I had to choose between drugs and alcohol and the medication. Mm -hmm. And I chose drugs and alcohol. Okay. Yeah. So that's where it started to become things like weed, alcohol, mm -hmm. cocaine. Very stimulants. quickly. Weed, alcohol, cocaine, ecstasy. Then everyone was doing heroin and oxy, and I would just do it around them. Were you doing heroin and oxy into your later 20s? Is that when it happened? I'm sorry. Like yeah. In, in your early 20s because you got sober at 23. Yeah. When we talk about oxys, was it pills? Yeah. My friends were smoking them. Okay. And how were they getting them? Um, Dealers. They At the time, they were like 80 was it, was, the, was it the oxy 80s? Yeah, and 80 bucks a pill. Yeah, because they just lived up to their name. No, yeah. but I remember it was 80 bucks a pill. I was blown away. Well, it's because people were doctor shopping, people like me. For, for, yeah. I never did any of that shit. Like, I not oxys. Yeah. However, I did have doctors that I would go to, and they take a picture of you, and like I'd say I have back problems, and they'd <laughs> give me a script, and then I'd go sell it to my heroin friends because they would – they would be able to shoot that shit. Yeah. And I was a tweaker. So like whatever money I was making, I'd go buy more meth. 
Oh my God. Calculated tweaker, right? Yeah. So I remember the 80s and then they changed them to Roxy's and all that, right? To the 30s. But so when you were smoking them with your friends, you now had developed an, an opiate addiction, right? No, I'm telling you, it's so weird. It didn't sit with you like it does with others. I really just don't think opiates hit me like they hit other people. I think it's different for some people. But I will say, Norcos, Vicodin, like stuff like that. Those I felt like the euphoria okay. and the high. You said heroin. Was it black tar heroin? Yeah, and I I would smoke it sometimes. How did you get that? Just these people that you were hanging out with? Yeah, because I was really with the the real drug addicts that, who were doing nothing else. These were all life. Newport kids. Yeah, from pretty good families. Yep, some not, but some, some yeah. Okay, um, so with heroin, you just smoked it. Smoked it. Did you shoot it? So one before I got the six years sober, mm-hmm. I had put together six months. Right. Um, I got prescribed Vicodin for um, getting my wisdom teeth pulled. Okay. And then I quickly ran out of those. And then was it a large bottle with lots of them in there, or what? I think just a normal, yeah. And then I called the doctor. Mm-hmm. And I said, I lost the bottle. Right. Um, and he did not buy it. He, I think he was on the fence. He said, that, I'll write you one more. And that's the last one. And then here's why I don't like opiates. I took the bottle of Vicodin. And then the second one, I did the same thing. And it did not affect me the way the first one did. You quickly need more. And I just, I don't like opiates. Because you knew it right then. I'm like, this is dumb okay you don't get high anymore so then why at 23 did you get sober was there some crisis situation did you, did you go to rehab yeah and what's interesting is every time i went to rehab i checked myself in every time how many times i've been many probably six one time was court ordered court or what, what happened you get in trouble i got three cocaine charges in one month but not cocaine on me for being under the influence. They would see me really wasted and then draw my blood in the jail mm-hmm. and then realize I was on cocaine. So an under the influence charge. So wait, see you really wasted as in your like walking down the street on cocaine and they pull you over and say, you look high. Yeah. Or someone would call the cops on me. Cause I'm, I'm telling you when I drink, it's not oh, alcohol time. is in the mix. I am a drink to die alcoholic. Okay, okay. And okay. it obviously has progressed now. I can talk about later to a different level. Okay. Like to where I'll die. Right. Um, but in the beginning, I think because of my bipolar, when I drink, I become enraged. So it, it, it totally intensifies your mental health mm-hmm. and disorder. And it's not a good time for anyone. Um, Which a lot, I mean, you know me, I, I work in the field. I do a lot of interventions. And- mm-hmm. I get a lot of people who I interact with that are diagnosed with various mental health illnesses, Mm -hmm. like schizoaffective, schizophrenia, uh, uh, bipolar one, bipolar two. And they think that when they're doing these drugs that relieve them, even weed, they think it's helping them. Yeah. It's fucking them up worse. Even if their life is falling apart, they just feel better. Because in that moment, it's like there is a sense of relief. Just not for anyone around them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's you, me. All of a sudden, they're going to like 
fly off the Richter. You don't know what the what, like. Yes, you're. It's, it's a whirlwind. It's in the process. It's yes. just formating. <laughs> it's going to come at you, and you don't know when. It's relieving for me, sure, but no one around me. Okay. And I had a lot of near death experiences. Episodes. Oh yeah, like I was on ecstasy one morning, and and alcohol, mm -hmm. and I just started roaming around the alleys of the peninsula. Uh -huh. I got a phone call from a family member, which was triggering because they're not addicts and it pissed me off. I guess I punched whatever window was in front of me, right. pulled out blood just starts spraying everywhere. I was like, Oh my God. So I was to my brother. I was like, I got to go. I'm dying. <laughs> and I, I don't know what happened, but I passed out in the alley from the blood loss. My friend who, God bless him, he was in addiction too, but he always looked out for me. Mm -hmm. So he was concerned that I left. He just knows me. Right. And he went to look for me. And so he followed a blood trail and found me in the alley. And by this point, there was an all points bulletin for me because my brother had called the police. And then... Jesus Christ. Yeah. Because remember, I said I'm dying and then I hung up. But... <laughs> Just the fact that they're following a blood trail to be able to find you. Yes. That means you're like pouring a lot of blood out of your hand. It was everywhere. Um, my friend flagged down a police officer who was not helpful. I think he'd arrested me before. So he's like that little druggy chick. Yeah. He said to my friend, um, Oh, I know her. And it, you know, what a bummer. But I went to the hospital. They said I was like, a little bit, maybe like an inch, half an inch away from death. Yeah. Fuck. So a lot of experiences like that. Um, risky. So th that's the reason, like it was things that were happening in your life that ended you up in rehab over and over again. Yeah. Because I think because of my bipolar, I get so depressed mm -hmm. and then I check into rehab and I I'm telling you my whole six year addiction, I was going to AA on my own accord, <laughs> sitting in still my home group, sitting in that meeting, loaded, um, dressed with zero self-respect. What do you mean? Like sexually revealing? Yes. Okay. S looking back, super embarrassing. What I, you know, thought of myself was in these meetings and then six years in that meeting, one of my best friends today approached me and he said, very bluntly, what the fuck are you doing here? And, as far as not staying sober? Yeah. Why are you in this meeting? You don't put together any time for six years. Mm -hmm. You don't work the steps. You don't have a sponsor. And he goes, I mean, just my opinion. You're wasting time. He there. said, get the fuck out. Just and, like that. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And then he said, or go ask that lady right there to sponsor you. Just random lady. And I did. And I worked the steps and I got sober for five years and nine months. Okay. <laughs> How old are you now? Now I'm 33. Okay. And um, you put together that amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? I mean, did you, did some, did you fall off the scale? Yeah. I, you know, my first year I'm on that pink cloud and like everything's getting better. My family cannot believe that I'm sober. Mm -hmm. And I decide I want to help people. Right. 
So I went to Hope Institute, got my KDAC, did three months Monday. Hope Institute was the same place you went to when you were. Oh, no, no, no. Never mind. Centaur University. Centaur. Thank you. Yeah. So I went there. That was Mickey Troxel. Yeah. That was her place. Yeah. I liked it. I did Monday through Friday. It's like an accelerated version of getting your drug and alcohol studies done. Yeah, but you do go five online, days a week. It was online stuff? No, in person. In person. Okay, so then you became a counselor. You were working in the field of addiction. My mom said get, I think, six months sober, mm-hmm. and she would send me to Centaur. She okay. would pay for it because right. I don't stay sober. Um, and I did, and I did the class. I did my internship at Pat Moore, and then I got hired at Northbound. Nice. Yeah. As a counselor, as a Drug and alcohol counselor. Yeah, I was on informal probation still. I had those three drug charges and then I violated with a DUI. And then I had to go to jail for 45 days. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so I was still on probation and northbound didn't allow that. Mm. So I was actually like- They didn't allow for you to work there because you were on probation. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe- Maybe, but yeah, that was the reason they told me. So it's like you're trying to better yourself. But you know what? I relate. I was working at Newport Academy with adolescents. Oh yeah, that was my first job. Yeah, working in treatment, mm-hmm. and Department of Justice decided to step in and take me out of that position because they thought that an old meth dealer shouldn't be working with adolescents. I'm like, I'm fucking trying to keep them off of drugs. Uh, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I can't stand stuff like that. But you know what? I went and fought that case and mm-hmm. it took me months and months. And I had my rehab counselor and my psychologist and my family and everybody that came and vouched for me. And then I, I got put, they finally granted me a probationary time. I could like go back to work in addiction treatment with adolescents for two years. But at that point I was already working at Morningside. So it was yeah. like, I was already at, in Moved a, on to adults. Yeah. Adult <laughs> working with adults that acted like adolescents a lot of times, but we won't go there. Absolutely. <clears throat> right. You already um, people. I did the same thing. I was like flying high on my pink cloud. So I showed up to court right. on my own and advocated to, get me off of probation early. Mm -hmm. And the judge asked me probably three times my sobriety date at at a different, I think to see if I was lying. Right. So I told her the sobriety date over and over. Because you had a rap sheet. Yes. You You had a history. She didn't trust me. She thought I just probably wanted to get off probation. Exactly. So I can follow like, Let's really figure out if Danielle's really telling the truth. Yeah. Right. And then I told her I want to work for this company and she let me off. And um, I immediately drove to Northbound and I was like, I got off probation and they couldn't believe it. So they were like, wow, you really want this job? Right. So I- I How long did you do that job for? Maybe three, almost four years. Okay. And then you were obviously involved in your recovery process during that time. You're now in your mid to late twenties. Yeah. And, And when I met you, you were representing Silver Lining, which was a new IOP. Yeah. And w- listen, when I met you, I was like, who is this chick and why have I never met her before? Because she's like excited for life. Yeah. She loves <laughs> she loves her recovery. Like she's really cool, mm-hmm. really nice. And like I wasn't sure. Like I was like so young and so like, th- like thriving and on top of like her recovery. Like we yeah. talked about it. We talked about your home group and all the different – places mm-hmm. that you've been and where you grew up and all that. And I was like, amazing. I loved yeah. it. 
and then I guess like down the line, some things happened and, mm-hmm. and, um, do you think you relapsed, right? I've relapsed a couple of times after a long-term sobriety. And this was in your thirties or in your late twenties or when? Late twenties was my first relapse after time. Okay. And your relapses were what? With alcohol, with drugs, with what? Alcohol. This is when the drinking has progressed. Okay. Um, Northbound changed my life. I, that's where I developed the passion for helping people. Mm-hmm. I think this was prior to like insurance and all that. So, sure. so you know, these people were in treatment um, for real, mm-hmm. real clients. Yeah, they weren't hopping. Um, they wanted help. They weren't getting paid. Or their parents wanted them to get help. Mm-hmm. But I was a treatment tech for two months, quickly moved to case management. And that's where my life changed. Um, I, you know, I still check in with some of the clients that were on my caseload and it was life-changing um, knowing that uh, they liked and loved their counselor mm-hmm. and really thought that I was helping. Right. And, you know, the workload got to be a little too much. So I moved to client advocacy, crisis intervention, mm-hmm. AMA blocking. Okay. Loved that. Right. Um, prevented a lot of people from leaving. Right. And they, and they stayed sober. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I've loved crisis intervention. I, I've done it a lot too. I love it. It's like one of the funnest jobs. Yeah. It's trying. It's hard. Yeah. A lot of people are like, how do you do it? And I don't know how I do it sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I don't want to do it. Yeah. But then when you're like in that moment where it's make or break and you're trying to talk someone off a ledge and mm-hmm. you're just like, come on, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I don't want you to end up in a sandpiper killing yourself. Yeah. Like, let's get you help. And then they're like, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, no, I'm going. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you don't block every single one. But you say that um, your job kind of became an overload. So were you still, was were you making your job, your recovery? Eventually I had to. The workload was. It's like you couldn't make it to your own meetings and be able to, to be in your own recovery because the job had become mm-hmm. everything. We had a caseload of sometimes over 12. I was running like six groups a week. Um, the family calls at the end of every single week, every parent you call, the referent updates, whoever referred the client there, you would update them weekly, each mm-hmm. referent. So mm-hmm. if every client had a referent, mm-hmm. that was a long email every week. Um, I got burnt out. I, 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 I advocated. That. Yes. Yeah. I think because of my mental illness, mm-hmm. it was extra hard on me. It was just taking too much out of you. It was taking everything out of me. And I noticed everyone else was just doing it and they were okay. Mm-hmm. And I was slowly not being okay. So what what led you to a drink? Well, eventually I stopped working for Northbound and that was really hard on me because, you know, I loved Northbound. Right. We really helped a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And you guys were competing with us when I was at Morningside, which is no longer there. Oh, yeah. yeah. For whatever reasons. <laughs> I, I love Northbound, too. I loved it then. Yeah. You know? And so at five years and nine months, I think I wasn't working at the time. I had fallen into a deep depression. Mm-hmm. But that happens to me a lot. But this one, one day I just woke up and drove to the bar. Just like that? Mm-hmm. At 1 p.m., Drove to the bar. Was the depression, the mental health, was it 
a breakup? Did you lose someone? Was there any kind of grieving process, anything like that? Or was it just because you're just down on life? This one was uh, depression. Okay. And suicidal ideation. ideation yeah. Mm-hmm. I get that a lot, which is sad. So you would have these feelings of, I just don't want to live. I don't like my life. Fuck everything. I want to die. Yes. And sometimes I would attempt, but this time I drank. Sometimes you would attempt to kill yourself? Yeah, I have a few attempts. Um, mainly taking pills. Okay. I, I would never have imagined this with you. Oh, I, you know, I'm in and out of psych wards, um, especially in my addiction. Because when I'm coming off the drugs and alcohol, most people just like come down and get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really felt like, okay, it's time to die. Mm-hmm. I can't live this way anymore. And I would check into treatment, get out, go right back to using. I would check myself in. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't let go of my friends. I couldn't accept that you had to change everything. Mm. I, I grew up here. So it was really hard to let go of your friends that you at the time considered good friends and family. <laughs> True. Yeah. So I would always relapse but the suicide attempts were always like take the pills then realize you're dying then get scared Mm. and like want help (laughs) it hurts my heart to hear this because remember i told you when i met you you were thriving you were happy you were excited for life yeah so i this is what i often think about because i I feel like I can talk about this stuff because I've suffered from mad amounts of depression mm-hmm. more when I was in my, in my alcoholism and in my addiction, like active, like I definitely contemplated suicide. I was just the type of person that I thought if I try to drive my car off this cliff in Malibu, knowing with my fucking luck that the car will get demolished, I'll probably get shacked up in some fucking hospital bed Yeah, as a paraplegic and be like, fuck, I couldn't even pull that off. Yep. Right. But I also think like there was a side of me, which is like my ego, possibly saying like, you don't really want to die. You just want to die and let people know that you want to die. So that's why you're going to ask for help. (laughs) Yeah. So that you do end up in a psych ward because I've been to psych wards, you know, like. They're so fun. (laughs) It's like time out. Very interesting. Time out from life and just you get to see really interesting people. Oh, yeah. There's some shit I saw in, in one place that I can never erase from my mind, like some of the activities yeah. that are going on. So it hurts. My, what hurts my heart is that we we get to be able to enjoy each other's company. I get to see your smiles and your laughter and all of that stuff. And then to hear that it gets that low, where we mm-hmm. can become that low in, in our, our emotions and in our mental state to the point where I just want to check out or you want to check out. Like, I hope that never happens anymore. Oh, me too. I mean, the suicide attempts are more impulsive and they're about ending the pain. Right. Um, just like drinking, ending the pain. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm not the type of relapser that's like, well, I'm going to control it this time. Right. I know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I know everything's going to go to shit very quickly, but it's worth it to me because I just need that relief. Right. Um, but five years, nine months, relapsed for 10 days, drank around the clock, until my body rejected it. But by this point, you have friends in AA. Mm-hmm. So people that show up for you. Right. So. You know, a lot of people show up for you. Oh, I know. I mean. A lot. They're in your house, like watching you drink. 
to make sure you don't die. Right. And then I remember the 10th day I called my old sponsor and she said, you need to talk to God. Hmm. And I was so angry at that response. I was like, no, you need to fucking help me. Like, that's not going to help me. Like, you need to help me talk to the, to God? You Oh, no, she, oh you wanted her to, to just help you. Someone needs to do something. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, that's not And she's work. like, no, you're beyond human aid. Like, you need to hire God. Yeah, she you goes, go God. ask God to relieve you of the obsession. And I was so angry, I hung up. And then I was, I actually, I was throwing up. Was uh, this recently? No, that was the first relapse after that, my first long sure. period of time. I crawled to the toilet. I was withdrawing. Um, I was throwing up. And then I looked in the toilet and I was like, God, please help me stop drinking. Mm. And just like begging. Oh, it makes me emotional. But I was like, God, please help me stop drinking. Mm -hmm. Please help me stop drinking. And then I showed up to a meeting that a friend invited me to. He put out a trash can, let me throw up in the meeting. And I got sober again. Okay. For... This last sobriety for again five years. Really, I keep relapsing at five years. So you would have altogether over ten years of sobriety if you'd have stayed from the very first time. Yeah, wow. the relapses are so short now because my drinking is so bad, so they don't last because I I can't last. When was the last time you relapsed? I have two months now, mm -hmm. so I had five years again. And I was debating whether or not to come on this because Pej and I have talked about talking about mental health even prior to relapse. I remember. Yeah. Um, Cause I think everyone talks about sobriety and AA and I have had a long journey with mental health struggles. Yes. And this time I had five years, something bad happened to me that I felt would be life altering. And I, legitimately thought, okay, my future was just ripped from me, you know, my plans. Mm -hmm. And I never in my life have I drank to not drink. I mean, like I drank not to get drunk. I drank knowing how depressed I get. Mm -hmm. And I, I needed that, um, I guess, courage to kill myself. And I couldn't bring myself to do it sober. So I knew if I drank, at some point I would feel that. And it, you know, same thing again, everyone in AA in my house, cops showing up, them telling the cops, if you don't take her in, she's going to kill herself. Mm -hmm. Cops said, we can't do anything. She knows what to say to us. Mm -hmm. We can't take her in. By third day, this one only lasted three days. I was rejecting the alcohol, throwing up everywhere. Um, I just drink vodka around the clock. Straight vodka. Yes. And then the third day, no one was in my house anymore. And I got, yeah, I, I, that's when I attempted. You have two months right now. What happens with Danielle when she goes through everything that you're describing right now and everything that happens? What makes you bounce back and decide, okay, you know what? I'm going to put some, I'm, I'm coming, I'm going to get back on the wagon. Mm -hmm. Like putting together two months is a decision that, that you make every day. Mm -hmm. Because as you said earlier, like there was times when you woke up, you're like, I'm going to the bar. It's like, I didn't even realize that the car just took me to the bar. Yes. And the alcohol just went in my mouth and it's now in my system. Yeah. 
how is it, what happens to you? Is there glimmers of hope? Is there somebody that says the right thing? Is there a connection to a higher power? Is it all of it to, to the point where you realize or decide today I'm fucking staying sober mm-hmm. today. I'm going to stay sober no matter what I feel, what I go through, what kind of demons are overtaking my mind, what, what kind of negative talk, mm-hmm. like self-talk I'm experiencing or enduring, like fuck all that today. I'm staying sober. What is it that you put together two months? Cause that to me, that's a big deal. I, this whole thing of like, I go out at five years or there's certain people I've seen in AA. There's one guy that I've seen for years and years. He's like, I always relapse at six years. I'm like, why? Are you just conditioned to think that it has to happen at six years? Or yeah, you've got to let go of that. you got to let go of that. It's dangerous. It is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like, personally, like, I could sit here and speak from a, a soapbox and be like, you must all have a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening as a result of working the 12 steps so you are God-centered and you will never relapse again. I yeah. can't do that. I can do that from my own experience. I could talk about like what happened for me, Mm -hmm. for me to be able to plug into that. But like, I have to respect mental health. I have to respect the fact that people are borderline. I have Mm -hmm. to respect that people have bipolar, that people have schizophrenia. This is real. Yeah. This is fucking real. Yeah. But I also believe that God gives us all the chance to be able to tap into that. I agree. To be able to make those decisions on a daily basis and say, today I want to live. Yeah. Today I I don't want to die today. I think the difference for someone with mental health and someone that doesn't have mental health issues, I think, so when something bad happens, um, a normal person is sad, upset. Maybe they binge eat for a couple months. They're sad. Mm -hmm. That's normal. I think for someone with mental health issues, it is the end of the world. And it is, this is never going to get better. Mm -hmm. So let me do everyone else a favor. And I genuinely in that moment believed that my family would be better off without me because I thought getting sober, you're just supposed to be fixed. Right. And I worked a solid program, not before this relapse. I always fall out sometimes, but Mm. when I was working a solid program, AA only covers so much. Um, The 12 steps definitely provide you with the spiritual awakening connection with God. But if you have a chemical imbalance or if you have significant trauma, sure, you have to look at that. The 12 steps don't necessarily cover that. Right. Um, at 2000, in 2015, at four years sober, I went to the Meadows in Wickenburg mm-hmm. for trauma treatment. Right. And it was life changing mm-hmm. what I learned. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I had to differentiate between bipolar and a trauma response. Okay. So, I always thought like my flip outs, my impulsive behavior was bipolar. Mm -hmm. It wasn't? Sometimes. But sometimes it was stemming from trauma. Yes. And I didn't know all these things. And so to me, this last suicide attempt, I really thought this was the end of the world and that my family would be better off without me. Mm -hmm. And I, I really did almost die. My friend heard me on the phone take the pills. Mm-hmm. She texted my mom and my mom rushed over and just started slapping me because I was out on the floor and she was just, I don't remember this. She was trying to make you come too. Yeah. I don't remember any of this. Every, this is what people have told me. Do they she, call the paramedics to pump your stomach and all that? Yeah. The paramedics came, 
I was in Hogue for, I think, a week. Don't remember anything. Were you in a coma? Were you just out? Yeah, they were waiting for me to wake up. So they told my mom I may have permanent brain damage. Like what were the pills? Seroquel. You had overdosed on Seroquel intentionally. Yeah. And I don't remember one second of Hogue. Finally, I woke up. Then I moved to Saddleback. Don't remember. Probably the first week there. I was there for a couple weeks. And then, so I was in the hospital for like three weeks and then had to go to a psych ward for eight days. After all those hospital stints? Mm -hmm. Why do a psych ward? Because you lost your shit then? Or they just thought she may be a danger to herself. Let's go stabilize her in a psych ward? Um, I think, I'm pretty sure they have to. It's like protocol. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime I had tried to attempt suicide, I went to a psych ward. and. This time I was there for eight days, but usually this time I still wanted to die. Um, I still wanted to die. And I got on, this is where I think the mental health, like AA doesn't cover everything. Sometimes people with mental health issues can't bring themselves to work a program Mm -hmm. if they're so deep. In their depression. Yes. Yeah. So then the medication stuff comes in and I got on this new med and it gave me the ability to work my program. To want to live a life, to want to do things, to want to. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say I do. It's hard for me to sometimes accept that things happen for a reason because that was so intense and I'm like struggling to find out why that's why that happened. But I will say this is the first time in my life where I've made dramatic changes to my program. Mm -hmm. I had this home group, it's Monday through Friday. And I've been stuck in that meeting for 15 years and didn't really do anything else. And now I'm like going to a ton of women's meetings. I'm making women friends that you know, it's so uncomfortable. Right. Um, I feel like I don't fit in in these women's meetings, but it's slowly becoming, it's it's more relief. I still go to my home group, you know, but I've been really dedicated to doing things differently because that was so drastic what mm-hmm. I did. I have a couple more questions I wanted to ask you in relation to some of the things you were just talking about. So obviously when somebody has like, like they're manic depressive where they they have bipolar and there, there are medications that they're prescribed mm-hmm. as a person with mental health. Like, have you been, cause there's different types. I see some people that are like, okay, I know I have this. I have to take this medication so that I don't feel this. Yeah. There's some people that are like, I fucking hate that I have this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take these medications all the time. Some of them make me blow up. Some of them make me overeat. Yep. Some of them make me sleep too much. Some of them make me groggy, yeah. all this, that, and the other. But, but, um, I don't even want, like, they'll start forgetting to take it, and then they become different. Mm-hmm. Like, they become, like, you know, this guy's not on his meds, or this, yeah. she's not on her meds, right? <laughs> so, um, and then there's some people that are like, okay, I know I have to take these, mm-hmm. but, like, eventually I want to get off of these. and I, Or or my meds might be off, and that's why I'm feeling a way of sorts, right? Yeah. But eventually I want to get off of these, and I've seen people that have been weaned off. Mm-hmm. I've seen people that have taken themselves off on their own without a doctor's orders, and then they, all of a sudden you just, like, get a, a lot of bad things happen. Yeah, like, different person. Different different person. <laughs> so that, And that's one of the reasons where I, I realized, like, mental health is real. 
like chemical imbalances are real. It's, it's not like, yeah. it's not like everybody's going to be able to just stabilize and be normal yeah. in a 12 step process. Right. Yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, and then another thing is, is this, there are people that are prescribed medications to stabilize, mm -hmm. but they still actively will use drugs. Um, example, smoke weed, right? Which I believe if you're being, being medicated for your disorder and you're doing weed on top of that, it kind of defeats the purpose of the medications that you're taking. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that, that one psychiatrist I saw said, you got to choose. I mean, it's like AA. Do you want relief? Then you need to do these things. Mm -hmm. Do you want relief from the medication? Then you need to be abstinent. Right. And um, Abstinent means 100% sober. I think so. Um, and I, the reason I'm asking this is because I am, uh, I've got some people in my life right now who I'm working with. Yeah. Who we're still in the process of hoping that they realize like what substances that they're using on top of the fact that they have their mental health. Yeah. Um, there's a reason why they remain depressed at certain times or debilitated or, or agoraphobic, if you will. You know what I mean? Yes. To the point where they can't leave the that house. That happens to me. Where you don't want to leave the house. I don't them. leave my house. Right. Yeah. And and that's the worst when you're in your own personal prison. Yep. And then it destroys your program. Right. And then you make poor decisions. But I think if people aren't surrounded by people with mental health issues, mm -hmm. it's going to be hard for them to grasp. Like, I think because we work in treatment right. and we see it every day, um, and then I've been to many psych wards, mental health exists. Mm -hmm. And then my dad and, and then me. And so AA to me is a like perfectly constructed program. Right. I am like blown away by what they created sure. such a long time ago. And I think they created a very safe place for everyone. The problem with AA is sometimes people um, dilute the message. So a lot of people in AA think anything from the neck up is loaded, including psychiatric sure. medication. And AA, they should not go and, and profess to people in the program yes. that you can't be on medication if they don't know. It's in the big book. The big book talks about that. Right. We are not doctors. Right. And then there's an AA pamphlet, medications in AA. Sure. So whenever someone would tell me, oh, I can't be on my meds anymore. Right. My sponsor said I can't. I would literally highlight their book and then give them the pamphlet and tell them to bring this to their sponsor mm -hmm. and then get back to me. <laughs> I like that. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you ever meet AA members <laughs> who are prescribed Xanax? Mm-hmm. And consider themselves to be sober in a 12-step program. Do you meet them? I have. And when you hear that, do you think, well, they're not really in recovery? Or they are if they're taking their Xanax as prescribed, mm -hmm. who am I to judge? Yeah, I have learned to if they're going to um self-destruct and if they're lying, mm -hmm. that's eventually going to come out. Sure. It's we don't hide our addiction well. Eventually it comes out. Mm -hmm. So at some point you, you just, mean like if they're going to misuse their medication. Yeah. So at, do you think a person that's prescribed Xanax or one that's on Suboxone, for example, which that's not like mm -hmm. really part of mental health. That's actually supposed to be yeah. other for other reasons and purposes. Yeah. Do you think that people in the program of, 
a 12-step program that are on these types of medications are blocked from the sunlight of the spirit? No, I used to have a very strong opinion about it. Um, but I think if something is providing relief for someone mm -hmm. and their life isn't unmanageable and they're not powerless over it, then it is clearly helping them. And you literally cannot care what other people think. I used to also have a strong opinion on Suboxone, medicated assistant treatment. But, you know, once you witness the cases where they have the bright intentions and sure. they are being monitored by a doctor, mm -hmm. I think if someone is pop or is taking Suboxone on their own, no. I think if you're being monitored by a doctor and then eventually lowering the dose and coming off, with my perspective changed because of all of the overdoses mm -hmm. and the heroin deaths and the fentanyl epidemic. Mm -hmm. I have lost like so many people I know to fentanyl and now they're putting it in cocaine. They're pressing pills. People are buying a Xanax thinking it's a Xanax and then it's cut with fentanyl. I think because so many are people dying, we have to put our ego aside. Mm -hmm. We have to because people are dying that's the real epidemic right now. So I used to have a, you know, more closed mind, but I also know people who were monitored by a doctor for probably their first year on Suboxone and, you know, came off of it that they tell me they would not be sober today if it weren't for that. For one, that long term One person taper. I know has 10 years. Right. Her first year was Suboxone. And if she didn't do that under a doctor's care, she believes she would be dead. Fair. Mm -hmm. That's why I have to keep an open mind to harm reduction. I've actually, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, like I've got this major TikTok talk presence now because of some people that helped. They told me that you got to get on TikTok. So I would go and speak my mind. Mm -hmm. And often like when I talk, I really try to watch my words. I don't want to like say... You shouldn't do that. You should. I, I say, this is what I feel. Yeah. This is what I feel. And you got the, the harm reduction crew that like follows us <laughs> on, on TikTok and they'll come stitch your shit. Yeah. And, and they'll grab a piece of something that you're saying, like a little piece. And twist it. And they'll twist it and turn it into like, there's this guy named Chad Sparrow. Like I, he's from a treatment center, I believe in St. Louis or something like that, where he's a CEO there. Right. Yeah. He's calling me a body broker. Right. Or, or I'm sorry, his crew of friends call me a body broker and they, and he comes and tries to correct everything I say. He'll say things like, I'm going to stitch every, I could stitch every one of this guy's things and he it's misinformed and he doesn't know what he's talking about. What's really weird is whenever he's like talking mm -hmm. to come back and give his input, he's reading off of a fucking cue card. That's or, a little weird. It's like, dude, you, if he you rehearsed it, <laughs> Come at me like with your knowledge, not with what you fucking found on Google, yeah, right? Like exactly, and it's all good. Like you want to think your shit, but he thinks that I'm absolutely against harm reduction. Against uh, like this is what I feel. And I had uh, Estelle from um, Cornerstone in Arizona on my show the other day. We very much are like minded. This is what I think. Mm -hmm. If you're like an old school heroin addict mm -hmm. that you've been doing this for 25 years and you definitely need to be on like some kind of method. I don't really like methadone, but like Suboxone, yeah. like for a period of time. Yeah. Like, okay, fair. Yes. But as he said, it still said this and I say it too. If you're a 23 year old kid that's been doing fucking like heroin or fentanyl for a couple of years, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that the individual really needs to be on Suboxone for a year. Yeah, I think uh, it's literally a case by case basis. Sure. And when when I had a strong opinion about it and used to think that's not sober, um, 
my old sponsor used to always say that's between them and God. Uh-huh. And sometimes sponsors will say, well, how do you feel? Like, do you think it's sober? Sure. Do you think you should be counting your time? Mm-hmm. And only they know in their gut. And I think if it's, it, it needs to be done correctly sure. and the person needs to be honest with their sponsor and, uh, and monitored by a doctor. They can't just be doing this on their own. Um, I think when you follow the plan accordingly and don't relapse, I don't see why it can't be counted because they're doing everything in their power to achieve long-term sobriety. Absolutely. And it's a personal decision. If a person, like I do a lot of um, recovery coaching and sober coaching and things like that. Mm -hmm. We were taught in some of our classes that when you're with somebody that they say they're in recovery, Mm-hmm. Even if you don't believe that because of what they might be doing in the recovery process, that that's not what people do. If they say they're in recovery, they're in recovery. Yes. And that's why this this podcast, I call it Peggy's Recovery Corner, mm-hmm. where we talk about all things recovery mm-hmm. or lack thereof, depending on how you roll or who you are or what you think. If you think that you're in recovery for being on Suboxone or being on, on Xanax or even marijuana maintenance, if that's what you consider yourself as let's say California sober or your recovery. Yeah. That's your recovery. See, I couldn't, I can't do stuff like that, but neither can I. Cause I know my mouth gets dry. I want to drink. And the next yeah. thing you know, I'm off to the races and let's go on that long. Yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> yes. And I'm a freak on marijuana. I'm so paranoid. Oh, um, you, you become one of those people that becomes paranoid. I become loaded. Right. For sure. For on marijuana. marijuana. There's some people that marijuana does everything for them. The, the music sounds better. The, the movies are more yeah. enhanced and, the food tastes better, but like some people, they do marijuana mm-hmm. and they're like frying on acid. I'm loaded and I'm paranoid. Paranoid. I can't talk. I laugh at weird moments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really not for me. Sure. But with, okay, so I understand people's arguments about medication, medicaid assisted treatment. So obviously there's going to be the med seekers. Yes. There's going to be the people that are manipulating. Mm-hmm. But I think if you are properly screened for like your history, mm-hmm. what, how much you use every day, how many times have you overdosed, how much time have you put together, and they just can't get it. Right. Um, I think if, if you are with an honest doctor, sure, then you've got to just at some point have an open mind with how many people are dying right mm-hmm. now. And a lot of people are dying. Yes. So we want to do everything we can to try to give them a chance to either catch a message, do mm-hmm. whatever they need to do so that they can live. Despite our opinion. Despite our opinion. Especially because a person that does fentanyl, I don't really think thinks that this could be the time that I die. They think this could be, be the time that I'm going to get really high like I did the last time. Yes. And you know what? I just won't do as much as last time, mm-hmm. which then makes it an accidental overdose because you didn't really intend to yes. overdose. And, and yeah. There's a few people that made some comments here. Let's see. They might disagree with me. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. I think the new studio casing. Damn. It's much worse. The wounds stay. Isaac says, I don't miss Bruxism. I don't know what that is. I don't know either. He's really well-versed. Like a little too well. Sometimes. Oh, yeah. Too um, advanced for us. <laughs> bipolar is my shit. That's right. Uh, bipolar is unite. Sean Jacob says, get it, guys. Wendy says, you look handsome, my friend. You're Whoa. her friend? No, I, uh, she's talking to you. Those can't be handsome. <laughs> they can be pretty. 
Okay. Cat. Cat says Danielle. Hi, Cat. All right. Jocelyn says I went out at six point five years with pre with preconceived not notions. with preconceived with notions. not not with preconceived notions about it. I'm ten years, three months plus, and have had a spiritual awakening. But on October twelfth, I had a great. I had to get mental health help, and I'm doing PHP at Overland. IOPI of trauma that still informs my reactions and behaviors, but the 12 steps helped me see more help was needed. I have major depression, PTSD, and ADD, yep. and needed intensive help, and I don't know what I would have, what would have, would have happened. Yeah. Okay, let's see here. Travis McAllister, love you guys so much. Aww. And uh, Joe Milligan, I had this experience before. I was in the treatment field when I was in dementia care. A close friend had a series of mental health issues, and I remember trying to get him into psychiatric care, but the AA bleeding deacons were telling me to work the steps harder. Yep. He committed suicide. I was furious at some friends for doing that and loudly laid the responsibility on them for their bigotry against psych meds. Um, yeah. Brooksism is tooth grinding. Oh. Brooksism. Okay, love you, Paige. All right. So... um. One one thing I learned is this has been a long journey for me. Mm -hmm. So you don't realize things right away. It's right. taken me years to get to know myself. And the best way to do that is in sobriety, seeking all the help you can get. I thought all my problems would disappear. They had only just begun. Yeah. The suicide attempts, the depression, the agoraphobia, um, the debilitating social anxiety. Right. People wouldn't think this because I like to entertain. I like to make people laugh, mm -hmm. but I have debilitating anxiety. And when, okay, here's my problem with treatment. They slap on a diagnosis in the first three days. Right. They literally don't know this person. Right. And then this person over identifies with that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And then they get like six medications. And, and then now they're, now they're bipolar because someone who doesn't really know them says they are. Right. And it's dangerous and it's harmful. So they're being misdiagnosed. They can Sometimes. be. Yeah, they can be. I think it's up to that individual. Like, okay, do treatment, you know, listen, learn. Mm -hmm. I think, you know. Would it be fair, do you think, to say, like, when somebody comes into treatment, let's say it's their first time, mm -hmm. if they're going to get diagnosed by a doctor, that the doctor takes the time to diagnose to the to what they assume or think at that time this person is presenting as possibly having rather than just it's end all. This is what the person is and that's all there is to it. And then possibly like three months later to re-diagnose to make sure that your diagnosis matches up with what they were before. Because through the treatment process, a person can definitely change a lot. I, I, yes. think, I think they just want to give the proper meds at that time in case there is psychosis or there is, I agree, you yeah. know, certain things to just to stabilize them. But I believe like, a, a, like to re-diagnose and re-diagnose until, because I, I don't, this never happened for me. Like when I went to treatment, mm -hmm. um, the guy, my counselor, I didn't, he didn't even send me to psychiatrist, mm -hmm. but then again, the place wasn't like a full blown treatment center. Yeah. He just called it that at the time. <laughs> but, um, but like I never got put on any medications and I did a lot of fucking drugs. Like yeah. I never experienced psychosis. So I guess the guy just assumed, well, he doesn't see he doesn't sit there and talk to the ceiling. He's good. He's good. Yeah. Yeah, right. But um I love what you just said right now because I do believe that a lot of people are over medicated. And over identifying right. with a thing that they may or may not have. However, people might disagree with this. The the model at Northbound that we had mm. at the time. This was back in the day. Old school days. Was 90 days. 
and then long-term outpatient. I believe wholeheartedly that's why we had such a huge success rate. In the 90 days, like you said, the professionals get to observe you right. and your behavior and your reactions and responses and you know the way you interact in your relationships and treatment or with staff. Like I know for me in trauma treatment, I was very combative, angry, raging on everyone. So they said that was not necessarily bipolar. It was a trauma response, mm -hmm. a fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. And they said I'm in constant fight mode, which I agree with because anger has been a problem my entire life. Right. But I just said, oh, it's bipolar. Mm -hmm. But after untangling the trauma, which is painful, it sucks. And then realizing these diagnoses that you think are dramatic, mm -hmm. like it's too much to get into my relationship with my dad. Right. But when I got sober, I started understanding him on a greater level, which I have more compassion for him now. Me too. Because I have bipolar. I have trauma. I'm an alcoholic. I became everything that I looked down on him for. Mm -hmm. And it gave me more compassion to a point where they call it a trauma bond sure. or even Stockholm syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that, but this sobriety now, which I've never tried to change it, I've been looking at that. Mm. And I've been working on that relationship because I started to realize when he's bad, I'm bad. So is this what you were talking about earlier that we could talk about later? Oh, yeah. This is it. I mean. How's your relationship with your pops right now? It's good, but it's so sad. My dad has lost everything due to his addiction, his mental illness. You know, he's aggressive. He likes to meddle in our lives and fight our battles, mm -hmm. which is great. Like, But he's unhealthy in his communication and um impulsive mm. and intense and he's due to his consistent relapses i've put him in treatment many times yes codependent trying to save my dad um and he you know he's not someone who wants to be on medication or, or that can consistently take it but you love your dad very much don't you i do i think no matter what through thick and thin like yeah there's that love, the common bond. Yeah. And I just have to work on no one that none of my professionals right now that I'm working with think that I need to cut it off entirely. Maybe if it was a friend, mm -hmm. they'd be like, that's a toxic friend. Like, adios. Yeah. But it, he's my dad. Yes. So I just set better boundaries and don't allow his current status to affect my current status. Like, if he's not okay, I can still be okay, mm. knowing I've done everything I can to help him. And at some point, he's just going to have to help himself. This is why they said I have a trauma bond or mm -hmm. a Stockholm syndrome, mm -hmm. because I reach out to anyone to help me help him. Right. And my siblings have learned to say no for their peace of mind. They can't deal with someone who consistently drinks all the time and disappoints them. Mm -hmm. So when they wouldn't help me, like if my brother didn't help me put him in treatment or pay for treatment, I would get mad at my brother. Mm -hmm. When my other brother wouldn't go check on him because I thought he'd be like face down in his vomit, um, he wouldn't go check on him. I'd get mad at my brother. He, they would say, call the police if you're that worried. 
And I was getting mad at everybody's boundaries. Mm -hmm. Like my sister, why don't you talk to my dad? Like he's your dad. And what I realized now is they are protecting their peace mm. and trying to build a healthy life for themselves. Right. And I have to respect that because look at what it's done to me getting mm. involved. Mm. It is, it has destroyed me. And so I'm learning that I have to respect other people's boundaries because they're doing it for their peace. This has been very powerful to hear all this, to do all this. <laughs> I want you to know something, a couple of things real quick, and then we'll wrap it up. I know I said that a second ago, but this has gone a lot, a lot longer than usual. And I think it's, it's needed to be talked about. It doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. One of the things is like a few months ago, I noticed on your Facebook, like everybody was freaking out because they were all concerned about you mm -hmm. and you were kind of out of the game. Like mm -hmm. I don't, we, nobody really knew what happened or some may have known. Yeah. But I was afraid to ask. I, when I see like on Facebook, like there's somebody that's passed away. I don't sometimes know what the fuck to say. Yeah. So I just don't say, sh I put a fucking prayer symbol and a heart. Like I that's, that. that's all. I don't yeah. want to sit here and say too much. And yeah. with you in your case, like, I was like, I love Danielle. I don't know what's going on with mm -hmm. her, but I'm sure if I need to know, I'll know when I need to know. Yeah. And then today I know like, yeah. this is really cool that, that you actually took the invitation to come down and be so transparent and open and, and talk in depth about all this stuff. Um, so it, it, this has needed to happen for a long time. We talked about this before. Yeah. I, I think last year. Yeah. Now, another thing is, is this, and the, the, I want to ask you one last question and um, I'm sure that I'll get a good answer for it and then we'll wrap it up. But um, do you see or think that this whole pandemic that's happened in the last two years or whatever, the way that it's left people in the world, even in our nation, has created and nurtured much more mental health because of the happenings of the world? Absolutely. I, I fell into a deep depression. You walk outside, it looks like zombie land, right? No one's moving right. and you're in your house all day. Some people need to go to work. They right. need to go out. Right. Some people thrive working from home. Sure. And it, it's terrible for people with mental health, the relapse rate, the suicide rate in teens that spiked, I'm a, I was a very outspoken during this pandemic. I saw. <laughs> People might disagree with me, but I think it's because I have mental health issues and I was watching the other side. So there was the side that needed to protect people from COVID. Mm -hmm. Shut down your business. You're selfish. Follow the rules. You're selfish. Right. But then people are still dying right. in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I advocated for that side. Right. I think because I identify with it. Right. You know, people working their whole lives achieving their goal and for that to be ripped from them. Right. And then the teens that'll fuck with you. Yeah. The teens killing themselves, the fentanyl relapses, people dying from that, the overdoses spiking, right. Um, ch children going, you know, behind in school, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, not paying att attention on in online classes. Like you mm -hmm. don't really know when the camera's off, what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. Right. I think there needs to be a happy medium. Because right. I kind of went a little extreme, like advocating for that side. Like, this is the <laughs> only way. We can't do this to people. Right. How dare you? Right. And I think there is a way to address the safety of COVID and a way to not destroy somebody's entire livelihood. Mm. And we have to figure that out. Mm -hmm. It can't be black or white. We have to protect people from COVID and we have to protect people from government overreach.
And I think because of the way it was affecting people's lives, mm -hmm. we have to have compassion for that as well. Not, not just the people dying from COVID. I love it. So I think there's a way. There is a way. There's many ways. There has to be. We, we can be some of the people that will be vocal and try to press that. I'm, I'm a little too vocal, but I've toned it down. <laughs> well, either way. I mean, it's not what we're saying. It's how we're saying it. Yeah, yeah. But I, God, I love you. I love our friendship. I love you You're too. You're such a good, such a good human being. I, I'm always <laughs> here for you. Um, it's such a privilege to have you here today and to see you in good spirits. And I love your smile. It's very contagious and Thank your personality you. for that matter. Thank you. So with that said, thank you for all that came on today. And um, we're going to sign off. And I hope you have a happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Love you. Bye.